Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. My title for today is The Coming of the Triumphant King. I was 16 years old, long, a long time ago. I was traveling in the land of Israel for the first time. And I remember what happened when our tour bus finally came to the place where we could see out the windows the, the walled city of Jerusalem. We knew we were going to get to Jerusalem. We knew we were going to get to walk those streets. We had some sense from pictures of what, what it might look like, but but something just happened when we could see that place. The, the full bus, the whole crowd had been talking continually, but, but everybody grew quiet when we saw for the first time that holy city about which most of us had only read. We arrived at night and, and the city was lit up against the black sky and and. It was as if we could, we could only stare. There stood the wall behind which were the structures that we could see, and, and we could only imagine what it must have been like in Jesus' day. A, a quiet hush just settled on the group as we got closer and closer and closer to that, to that city. Since then, I've been back to Israel a few times, and I'll tell you that Every time I've had that experience, the same thing happens. There's just something that happens when many on the tour or with the group see that city for the first time. Today's text takes us to that city in the first century. The combination of the Gospels shows that Jesus had made other trips there, but, but this is the first recording of such a trip in Mark's Gospel. This text will take us to what we know as the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's only the second story that all four Gospels record. It is his entering the city, the process that would lead to his death, his burial, his resurrection. In fact, the rest of this gospel, we've reached the point where the rest of this gospel, chapters 11 to 16, deal with the final week of the life of Jesus, devoted to this last week as, the, as this very fast-moving gospel slows its pace down toward the cross. There's no wonder that some scholars have called this book a passion narrative with an introduction, because this is really the the focal point. As we pick up the text in chapter 11, this is a time of celebration. We'll see that as people are casting their garments and palm leaves in front of Jesus. But we also know, and we know this because we know the rest of the story, this is a a solemn time. Yes, there is celebration. And yes, the crowds cry out, Hosanna. But Jesus will announce judgment on the city. Arrest will happen. Crucifixion will turn the sky dark. So we enter this story with with a level of seriousness 
even as we see the coming of the triumphant king, as we see what the word would have us to see. So let's begin in chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll read through first the first six verses. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, why are you, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. Well, here's point number one as we look at these first verses. See with me the sovereign hand of the Son of God. See the sovereign hand of the Son of God. We, we enter into this story as they approach Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a place associated with coming judgment at the hand of the Lord in Zechariah 14. Jesus sent two unnamed disciples into the village to secure a colt. Matthew and John say it was a, a donkey, and, and they were to, to secure this animal for this journey into Jerusalem. And Jesus gave them details of precisely what would happen. They would go into the village, and there they would find a donkey tied up. Some scholars argue that would have been unusual, and that donkeys were often running loose in that day. And then Jesus said, if anyone were to ask, why are you taking the donkey? Why are you doing this? Just, just say, the Lord needs it, and he will return it back here at the appropriate time. And when these disciples arrived there, everything was exactly as Jesus had said it would be. They found a donkey there, tied by a door. And perhaps not surprisingly, somebody did ask, what are you doing untying the colt? Just as Jesus had said would happen. Then the disciples responded just as he had told them. And the owners of the donkey agree to let that animal go. Just as Jesus had said. Now, as we look at this text, scholars differ as to whether or not this is a picture of Jesus prophesying from his foreknowledge or if he had prearranged this, this gathering and the gaining of the horse. On one hand, on one hand, there is precedent in that culture for kings to commandeer an animal for a particular purpose and a time. And so maybe Jesus made this arrangement. The specifics of the details, what the cult would be like and where they would find the cult, and the particular response he gave them, this is what you say when somebody asks the question, suggests at least that maybe there had been prior planning. And even the fact that the people apparently so readily gave up their donkey when the disciples said the Lord has need of it implies at least that Jesus had set this up, maybe even with a password that that would confirm his request. And so it's possible 
he prearranged all of this. On the other hand, the question of the owners, why are you doing this? Why are you taking the colt? Might at least suggest that Jesus had not made a prior arrangement, but rather it was indeed his divine foreknowledge evident here. And we certainly know in this gospel that Jesus gives evidence of that, of that power. In several chapters, he gives evidence of his knowledge of perceiving the hearts of people around him. He clearly speaks of his own crucifixion and burial and resurrection. He knew exactly what would happen and when it would happen. So we look at this whole gospel, and it's certainly possible that Jesus was simply stating here what he knew was going to happen according to his foreknowledge. But either way, by foreknowledge or by prearrangement, the events happened just like Jesus said they would happen. That shouldn't surprise us. Let's think about what we've seen this entire semester. Jesus in this gospel, as we've seen throughout the preceding weeks, this Jesus is the Son of God, first announced by the writer in Mark 1.1, then affirmed by the Father at his baptism in Mark 1.11, and then even identified by a demon in Mark 1.24. In the first 24 verses of the book, three times we learn that he is the Son of God. This Jesus is the one who drives out demons. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He forgives sin. The wind and the waves halt at his words. After all, he created them in the first place. The demons flee at his command. He teaches like nobody else has ever taught. He's the miracle worker who affects supernatural happenings. He's the master over nature and demons and sickness and death. He is, and we go all the way back to the beginning of this book, he is the Son of God. And... He's the Son of God who sovereignly controls the events of chapter 11. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing happens without his knowledge. He is no victim unexpectedly arrested and killed when he arrives in Jerusalem. No, he's the Son of God who sovereignly controls every event in this chapter. And he is worthy of our praise as we see the sovereign hand of the Son of God. In fact, if we get through this gospel study throughout this semester, and we don't come out of this with greater appreciation for, greater love for, greater respect for, and more obedience to Jesus than when we started, we will have missed something in this study. He's the sovereign Son of God. So what do we do with this? If Jesus really is the sovereign Son of God, and He is, how should that affect our lives? I think, even as I think about my own life, I think we should worry less, right? And trust more. The Son of God is in control. We should let go of our fears and not let them control us. If Jesus is the sovereign Son of God, we ought to sleep better because He's in charge. 
We ought to take steps of faith that we know we're supposed to take because he's sovereignly controlling our lives. We ought to trust him more readily in the most difficult times of our lives. You see, the test, the test of our belief in the sovereignty of God is not when we're discussing it in the classroom. It's not even when things are going well. It's not when we're on the mountain. No, rather, the real test of our trust in the sovereign hand of God is when the bottom drops out. The real test is when God leaves a thorn in our flesh. The real test is when God's leading directs us to a cross. And we have to decide whether or not we're going to trust his sovereign leading. Jesus is the sovereign son of God. And we must see him that way. Here's number two. See the humility of the king. Go back with me in the text. Let's pick up in verse 7. And let's see what they do. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. They, they create for him a saddle, if you will, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then they echo it again, Hosanna in the highest heaven. See the humility of the king. In several places in this gospel prior to this point, Jesus had silenced others in, in what we speak of as the messianic secret. For example, he told a, a healed leper. He told the family of, of Jairus, whose daughter had been raised from the dead. He told the people around a, a deaf and mute man who had been healed. He told them not to go tell anyone yet what he had done. At some points, he told his disciples not to go out yet and talk about him or not to go out immediately and talk about what they had experienced. He told demons to be silent even when they declared him as the son of God. So we see that practice prior to this point, but all of that's about to change, however, in this, in this chapter. In this story and everything that we have just seen, he intentionally takes steps that have messianic implications. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. He rides into the city on a donkey, just as Zechariah 9.9 had foretold a coming king would do. So rather than walking into the city, as most pilgrims would have done, Jesus intentionally rode in on a colt, intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of a, of a coming king. He requests an unbroken donkey, one that had not been ridden upon. And understanding among the first century Jews, this would have been, this kind of animal would have been especially suitable for the sacred purposes of a king. When the people spread their clothes on the road in front of him and others spread leaves, it's John who tells us they are branches of palm trees. When they, when they spread them in front of Jesus, they might well have been thinking of the Old Testament story of people spreading their garments under King Jehu in 2 Kings 9. 
Jesus riding in on a donkey might well have reminded them of King Solomon entering Jerusalem on David's mule in 1 Kings 1. And both pictures of people spreading their garments and spreading leaves and Jesus riding on a donkey point to a king. And this time, Jesus does not silence them. The people cry out, Hosanna, at the beginning and the, the ending of their praise. Hosanna, a word that literally means save us from, from Psalm 118. But, but it may well have been that that word has really just become a word of praise by the time of Jesus. Maybe even similar to, to our praise the Lord. They cry out, Hosanna, and Jesus does not quiet them. There's shouts of, of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of, of our father David. The first, again from Psalm 118, are expressions of hope, of excitement that, that Jesus is going to reestablish the, the throne of David, the one that Bartimaeus in the previous chapter had called the son of David, would set up his messianic kingdom. And Jesus does not hinder their words this time. The other gospel writers show us even more the cries of the people. In Matthew, we read, Hosanna to the son of David. In Luke, it's blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In John, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Jesus is indeed the king. And he declares that with great intentionality when he comes into the city of Jerusalem this time. At the same time, it's quite likely that the people were thinking of him in terms of a political messiah who would free them from Roman bondage. They were looking for a king, yes, but a king that would break their chains. Even his disciples didn't understand it all. John tells us that. And we know in Acts 1, they're still asking the same question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't get it. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. As Dr. Aker reminds us in his commentary on Mark, he is not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. No, he is here to purge the people of their sin. That's Jesus' plan. He is the king, but he will reign on his terms, not on their terms, not on the basis of their nationalistic expectations. He would reign as he chose to reign as the king. And how would he do that? We know how. He would reign by humbly following the Father's plan to a wooden cross and a borrowed tomb. The rest of this book. This, this was Jesus. Royalty born in a Bethlehem stable. The master who came to, to serve others. The king. The king who rode in the town on a donkey rather than on the warrior horse of a of a victor, the perfect sinless Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the giver of life, 
who came to die. This was Jesus. And in all of these events in this chapter, this is a king who, as prophesied in Zechariah 9 and later described in Matthew 21, he would serve in humility and in gentleness. See the humility of the king. And when we see that this morning, we must give pause to to remember at least two things. Here's the first one. Real Christian leadership demands humility. The best Christian leaders I know, I could line them up. The best Christian leaders I know stand authoritatively for the truth of God's word, but they stand on their knees. They They've been humbled under the the grace of God and they lead from a unique sense of strength and weakness. Yes, they lead, but they do so from dependence and gratitude. And we must remember that. We who are called to be God's leaders must be humbled under the hand of God. That leads to the second implication then. The second thing we must think about as we see the humility of the king, and here it is, you and I, We're not all that. It's really that simple. You see, ministry has a way, if we're not careful, of building up our egos. We we too often, we long for more recognition. We long for greater popularity. We long for for more prestige. And sometimes, if we're honest, we look for platforms that will allow us to ride into the city as the king. But here's what we have to remember. There is but one king, and we are not he. We must see the humility of the king. So see see the sovereign hand of the Son of God. See the humility of the King. And then here's number three. See the expectation that more is yet to come. See the expectation that more is yet to come. Go back to Mark 11. Pick up in verse 11. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus then makes his way into the city. He makes his way to the temple, and where at least according to Mark's telling of this story, it all seems anticlimactic. You've heard the praises of the people. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. And you would think that something more is going to happen. But, That's not what happens, not according to this telling. Instead, it's a late hour. The crowds don't seem to be there now. Jesus makes his way to the temple. He looks over everything, and and his disciples then make their way back to Bethany for the night. Yet, there is more to come. 
as the original hearers of Mark's book would have understood, and as we surely understand today, there is more to come. New Testament scholar David Garland, one of my former professors, put it this way, Jesus does not tour the temple as a tourist, dazzled by its glittering gold, glistening white marble, and gigantic stones, nor does he visit it out of pious reverence. He offers no prayers or sacrifice. Jesus enters the temple to inspect it, and the next day's events reveal that he comes not to restore it, but to pronounce judgment on it. There is more yet to come. In this case, negatively, it is judgment on a city who had rejected him. With the cursing of a fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, Jesus would announce judgment. But on the other side of that is the focus of the last part of this book, the death the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God, through whom we have life. There is more yet to come, as there always is. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When God announced judgment on the serpent, here's what he was saying, there is more yet to come. When God called out his people through Abraham, he was saying there is more to come. When God sent prophets and raised up kings for his people, he was saying there's more to come. When he sent John the Baptist, his very title as the forerunner, God was saying there is more still to come. When Jesus died on the cross, he had already talked about his death and his burial, and he had continued the rest of the story to say, there is more yet to come. And today, today, as you and I serve the resurrected king and await his coming again, we hear God say to us, there is still more to come. And then when God takes us home and we rest with him in eternity and we worship him around the throne, the very nature of eternity says there is more still to come, like forever. There's more to come. Well, here's the point. Sometimes ministry doesn't always seem to be what we thought it would be. And it all seems anticlimactic at times. You work so hard to get there, and this is where God placed you, and nobody even knows you're there. Here's what I want us to see. The movement and the work of God that seem so anticlimactic and so unspectacular today might well bring victory and rejoicing tomorrow. The hard, lonely work of ministry that sometimes demands confrontation can bring resurrection tomorrow because there's more still to come. So what do we do? What do we do in these sometimes anticlimactic, mundane moments of ministry? You know what we do? We serve God fully today. 
we go back to Bethany to get some rest for the night, and we follow God fully tomorrow and trust that he's sovereignly leading our lives. We trust the one who is the sovereign son of God, the humble king who has triumphed. And that's what we see as we move toward the end of this book. I, I began by taking you to a tour bus where I saw the city of Jerusalem for the first time. I go back beyond that to my early years as a believer, a teenage believer, learning for the first time not about the literal city of Jerusalem, the contemporary city of Jerusalem, but rather the new Jerusalem that the book of Revelation describes. And, and I recall as I learned about that, I thought, that's pretty cool. A city that, that just comes down from heaven and a city that's large enough for the, for the multitudes and it's complete with jasper walls and golden streets. And at least as I understood it at that time, every single one of us was going to get our own mansion. And that was the city of God, a river of life flowing through the middle of it. No need for the sun or the moon. And I heard all of that, and I said, I like that. And I want to go there for no other reason than to see the place and to get the blessing of the mansion and to walk on the golden streets. I, I know now that, that people have different interpretations of what that city is like. But here's what I've learned since then. It's not the city that matters in the first place. It's the king who reigns there. The triumphant king has come. To him alone be the glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege we have of having your word in our language and in our hands. I thank you for your son who was willing to ride into the city that would take his life in our place. Father, help us to see Jesus as the sovereign son of God, as the humble king. God, help us to serve you fully today, even even if it seems mundane and nothing happening, not like what we expected. As Jesus just goes into the city, looks at the temple and retreats to, to Bethany. God, help us to trust that you are leading us. And that whatever you have still yet to come is right for your glory and best for us. These things we ask in the name of the triumphant King, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. 
For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.